The Start On Demand. On Demand. The Winnipeg Whiteout street parties are coming back with a $5 price tag. Most are in support, though, with the money going to charity. Would you support mandatory vaccinations? A new poll for Global News shows most of us would, especially with parts of the country dealing with measles outbreaks. Canada is warming up faster than the rest of the world, and it is irreversible. And we've got this Wishing I Was Fishing contest on right now, courtesy of Winnipeg Custom Countertops and Cabinetry. Chance for you and five guests to have the ultimate fishing experience at Q Lake Lodge in Nopaming Provincial Park. And we'll hear from a Minnesota man who fishes there all the time. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, April 2nd podcast for The Start. In terms of the whiteout party, I imagine you probably have to get a wand to... No question, hundred percent. Yeah, do. you had your bag searches too. I think yes, we had our do. bag search going into the Whiteout mm-hmm. Street parties last year. Yeah, it's just the day and age that we live in. Uh, I noticed an apartment building on my uh, on my regular commute uh, across from the Tim Hortons that I start uh, stop at has now a security guard working in their lobby overnight. I don't know if I've ever seen that in Winnipeg. You see doormen in a lot of different uh, other cities, but I don't know if I've ever seen a security guard in an apartment building. Caught my attention the other morning. So we're working some other angles on the whole idea of security in our community right now because it's not just public places where people are feeling less than secure and that there are concerns over who has access to which facilities, private or public. Now with the Winnipeg Jets, a lot for the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs and currently at the top of the Central Division. Are they are holding they? it securely on their own? Are they tied, Greg? Yeah, they're ahead of St. Oh, Louis by two were, points. I thought they were, but then they weren't. No, they were tied okay. with Nashville after the win last night. St. Louis Blues, after being in last place in the National Hockey League as of December 31st, are now two points behind the Winnipeg Jets for first in the Central. They are tied with the Nashville Predators. The Jets are on 96 points. Nashville and St. Louis have 94 points apiece. So playoff fever is building. Jets only have, what is it, three games left? Three games left. They play in Minnesota tonight. They play in Colorado Thursday and in Arizona on Saturday. Economic Development Winnipeg's Dana Spiring, who will join us later this morning at 8.35. And Kevin Donnelly of True North Sports and Entertainment officially launched 2019's Winnipeg Whiteout Street Parties yesterday morning at Bell MTS Place. Tens of thousands of fans gathered in downtown Winnipeg to celebrate the team's 2018 playoff run, which saw the Jets reach the Western Conference Final for the first time ever. Partway through last year's festivities, tickets for attendees to the street parties were introduced. Those are not going away, and Global's Amber Magookin tells us about the other major change. While Jets fans get ready to show their spirit, the fun will continue for the street parties, but it won't be free. This year's fans partying outside the Bell MTS place will need to buy a $5 ticket instead of last year's free tickets. Unfortunately, people were accessing more tickets than they used, which led to lower than expected redemption rates. And for us, less than optimal planning opportunities. So we know now that placing a monetary value on the tickets will allow us to better gauge the actual attendance. But not everyone is cheering for the change. It's unfortunate for those people that can't afford 
the five dollars because you think they might have three or four games in one week and that's twenty dollars per person you go as a couple that's 40 bucks so it adds up pretty quick maybe they could do free for the family areas everybody getting together and having a good time if it costs five dollars for that it's five bucks you will be able to get your ticket from the box office at Bell MTS Place or online at Ticketmaster. All of the money will be going directly to the United Way. We have identified three critical issues in our downtown, addiction, homelessness and mental health. Together, we will determine how to best invest the proceeds of the whiteout parties to make an impact on these particular issues. The first round of tickets go on sale next Monday. Amber McGookin, Global News. So, Greg, you saw some pushback yesterday on Twitter. I oh, saw, looked oh on your, your profile and saw you were in a heated debate. Yeah, you know what? And not necessarily debate. I think some others on the side saw it that way. I try to see all sides on these things. It's a big challenge to organize an event this size. Heck, it's a big challenge to organize a dinner party for 25 people and have a good idea of how many people are coming and not coming. If 25 people all say they're attending and only 15 people come, well, you're going to waste a lot of food. A lot of preparation time is going to be wasted, etc. So when you're talking about 10, 15, 25,000 people coming down, True North is saying this. Look, we introduced these tickets uh, through the playoff last year. We had at the beginning of this street party festival season, shall we say, first come, first served. That didn't really work out in terms of people being guaranteed entry. There were a lot of people who were coming and being turned away from the street parties. That's not an ideal situation either. So they brought in the ticketed situation. That caused another problem. There were people who were getting their hands on as many tickets as they could and then not using the tickets. So the organizers were preparing for 25,000 people and having 14, 15,000 people show up. That doesn't work on a massive scale. We know that there's public cost to this, even though there's sponsorship and lots of people saying, hold on, this is going, this $5 is going to create a barrier for some people to get into the parties. And that was not really ever the intention of the parties it was supposed to be inclusive. Mm. And so it's getting a lot of pushback on that fact and the whole idea of which was more convenient and who was it convenient for. The, the organizers are the ones that are putting on the party. They need to set some boundaries or security issues and all the logistics. I, I'm not – I don't like the idea of there being a barrier to entry for anyone, but there's no perfect system. There isn't, but that, that there were some people saying, well, why not just do the cap and keep it free and say it's first 10,000, first come, first serve, and or at least include that family section that they had last year, which was by They're the Millennium family Lambry, section this year. but you pay for it. Right. Right. And so there, that, that if you're if you are a family of four and you're going down and I'm just I'm thinking of the families I know that went right, that were they brought some of their snacks in and those kinds of things in the free area then um, and didn't have to have the tickets or it was a different part. It just becomes another 20, save your family four. Now you have a twenty dollars and then you have to buy the kids six dollars bags of chips and, you know, those kinds of things. It does become cost prohibitive. But I, I overall, I, I don't know what else they were supposed to do. Fundamentally, they well, have to be able to decide. Let us know what you think, 204-780-6868. We're already getting the text messages coming in, and we will revisit this conversation through the morning, including at 8.35 when we speak with Dana Spiring from Economic Development Winnipeg. 
question of the day at cjob.com. Are you okay with a $5 fee for the Winnipeg Whiteout Street Parties? Question of the day brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. And the results so far at cjob.com, 79% say yes, it's going to charity, and 21% say no, it's too much for some. So yesterday, it was announced that those street parties will continue. The Jets are... Well, I won't say comfortably in first place in the Central, but they are there as we wake up this morning. And Economic Development uh, Winnipeg's Dana Spiring, Kevin Donnelly of True North Sports and Entertainment, officially launched 2019's Winnipeg Whiteout Street Parties yesterday morning at Bell MTS Place. Tens of thousands of fans gathered in downtown Winnipeg to celebrate last year's playoff run, which saw the team, the Jets, go to the Western Conference Final for the first time ever. Partway through last year's festivities, tickets for attendees to the street parties were introduced. Those aren't going away. And there's a new wrinkle this year that we've been speaking about extensively. Dana Spiring, president and CEO of Economic Development Winnipeg, joins us now. Good morning, Dana. Good morning, guys. How exciting is this to be doing this all over again? <laughs> and I know uh, the Jets aren't uh, you know, running into the playoffs on 11-1-1 one uh, clip like they were last year, but people are getting excited about people the People are getting excited, and we can't forget that they are in first place, right? They, we don't want them to peak too soon, and, and maybe this is the plan. We'll see how it goes. Well, I like how you think. I really do. I like how you think <laughs> a lot. Uh, but there are some, there has been a little bit of pushback with regard to this $5 charge, and uh, I've been saying... Since the parties last year, that one of the things I loved most about the street parties was not only how they brought our community together, but who came together from all backgrounds, demographics, economic backgrounds. Is this $5 going to make uh, accessibility an issue for some? You know what? We've tried really hard to make sure that that this $5 ticket charge um, is, you know, kind of as palatable as possible for as many people as possible. And, you know, we're not naive to think that everyone in the city is going to feel great about the fact that we're charging for tickets. But, you know, last year we we did institute a ticket policy. Tickets were free. Uh, And we had a lot of situations where people would take 10 tickets and not use any of them. So, you know, the tickets didn't really accomplish what we needed them to accomplish. We want to make sure that, you know, we can keep everybody safe. We want to make sure that we can create the fan experience that makes those parties, you know, as great as they were last year. So we need to know if 10,000 people are coming or if 30,000 people are coming. We, we need to make sure that we're prepared for that. And the ticket process that we had last year didn't work for us. So, so we know that Winnipeggers value their money, and, and we believe that um, you know, when they have to pay $5 for tickets, the chances of them using those tickets are, are pretty high. We also, though, thought, how could we use these parties as a way to do something better for our community? How could we you know, kind of raise our game a little bit? And we know that there are issues that face our downtown, like homelessness and mental health and addiction. And we thought, you know, what if we could leave a legacy? What if we could have great parties, but yet give some something back to our community at the same time. So when we decided on this $5 ticket uh, price, we partnered with United Way. 100% of those proceeds go back to members of our community. So none of that money goes to True North. None of it goes to the city. 100% go back 
to charities who help in, in those causes. So, you know, I feel really good about that. And I think we know as a community how, how much Winnipeggers give and how much we give back. And, and this is another ability for us to showcase that to the world. And just one thing, just so we can step back and, and move on from this part of the conversation. You mentioned implementing the ticket system in the first place last year. In the first round and, and partway through the second round, if memory serves me, there were no tickets. Tell us, That's right. tell us why the first come, first serve model didn't work. Well, you know what? We, we had no idea when we started last year how many people were going to come. We, we thought we were going to have a fun party. We thought, you know, that Winnipeggers were really excited about the Jets' playoff run. But as we started to see that momentum build, we weren't sure how big these events were going to get. And frankly, there's security issues. When you get to have a party that's too big, um, we need to make sure that we have enough police and enough security to deal with that. We also had to make sure for just practical reasons that we had enough bathrooms and enough food trucks and, you know, enough people to check bags on the way into those parties. So it was important for us to get a handle on numbers. It was important for us to control it. And and the tickets were something that were that were um, floated and suggested to us. So so we tried it. We didn't like the results. and, And we went back to the drawing board this year. Well, I, I think the the parties are, and, and I'm on record, and I just said how incredible I think they are. What what's going to be new this year? I know you've brought some partners in as well, and uh, I think some of us were con- uh, not, uh, I think, surprised would be the word that True North Square isn't going to really be the epicenter of these parties. But why is that, Dana? Well, you know what? We, we learned a lot from what we did last year. And we, we you know, you, you remember throughout the playoffs last year that we tweaked that template a little bit. We tweaked the footprint of the parties. We thought we came to a really good kind of comfort with the, the template that we had. So we are using a template that's very similar to what we used last year. Um, we're going to make sure we have great screens. You're going to see some new things in the middle of the street. I'm not going to give all the surprises away. <laughs> Um, we hope to, you know, bring in some entertainment as we get further along this playoff run. So there's a lot of pieces that, that are still, you know, moving parts for us, and, and we intend to make the fan experience even better. True North Square is going to be used maybe later in the playoff run for some different things. The reality is it's not huge. So, you know, if we're looking at a capacity of 15,000 for round one, True North Square doesn't help us, um, you know, accommodate that many people. So we're going to keep the template we have. We think we've uh, worked out the kinks for the most part on that. And, uh, and we're going to see where this playoff run takes us. If the demand is high and you hit that 15,000 person threshold, is there any opportunity for the party to expand? Or are we saying at this point we need to keep that cap? And so unlike last year, you won't have that evolution of the party as it was. Well, we do have three templates so that we are set up so that we can, you know, have the party grow over the playoff run. We have three different templates that accommodate three different uh, amounts of people. We're going to start with our smallest template. What we've promised everybody is that we will make a decision 48 hours in advance as to whether or not we're going to expand those footprints. And, and that gives our you know, community services, our police, our, our transit people enough time to accommodate that. It also makes sure that we sell the right amount of tickets. So we do have the ability to expand. We're going to start at, at the smallest template in round one. And, uh, and we'll, we'll see where we go. How big of a marketing tool is this for Winnipeg? Oh. And I've had some conversations with some folks uh, that, that this is just really the envy. These parties are the envy, not only of NHL franchises across the country, but across North America. That's not an overstatement, is it, Dana? No, it's not an overstatement. And, and one of the things that I think Winnipeggers sometimes forget about is the spotlight that was shone on Winnipeg last year during, during the playoffs. 
I have a very good friend of mine who is an investment banker in New York City, originally from Winnipeg, and he watched the NHL playoffs on NBC, and every single commercial break, sitting in his Manhattan apartment, they cut to Winnipeg and the whiteouts. And, and if I took my entire budget at Economic Development Winnipeg, I couldn't buy that kind of exposure. And, you know, when we go trying to lure businesses or, or get people to move to Winnipeg or try to get special events to come to Winnipeg, that kind of publicity matters. You know, no one's asking us anymore, where's Winnipeg? Or what do you guys do in Winnipeg? You know, they have visions of that whiteout. They have visions of a downtown that is energetic, that people come together passionately, safely, respectfully, and celebrate their hockey team in their city. And, you know, to the extent that we can showcase that to the world, that's going to pay dividends for us for years and years to come. Dana Spiring is president and CEO of Economic Development Winnipeg, joining us to talk about the Winnipeg Whiteout Street Parties. Dana, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. But we start this hour with the question, would you support mandatory vaccinations in Canada? There's a new poll out this morning that found 88% of Canadians that were surveyed would actually approve of legislation that would make it mandatory to vaccinate all school-aged children. Now, this Ipsos poll, which was done exclusively for Global News, found 43% of parents wouldn't send their kid to school if they knew there was an unvaccinated child in their class. And an overwhelming majority, some 85 percent, believe the problem is misinformation. Now, it's been more than 20 years since a discredited study linking autism and vaccinations was first published. And since then, we've seen, I don't know, countless studies have been proven again and again that immunizations are safe. But still, there's a growing group of parents expressing concerns. Vaccine hesitancy has now been considered, I think, by the World Health Organization as one of the major threats to global health. Yeah, one of the top 10 threats to global health. Take measles, for example. It was technically eradicated from Canada in 1998, but Vancouver is currently dealing with an outbreak. And south of the border, officials have seen more measles cases this year than they did all of last year. Global's Heather Urex West looks at how we got here and why there is such an absence of trust. Sabrina Backus is a mother of two. She has a little boy and a baby girl. And like most parents, she wants to keep them healthy and safe. I've had so many issues with um, chemical drugs that um, I was more afraid that, that that genetic may have been passed on to them and that they would have reactions to it. What's this letter? It's why Bacchus admits to being what vaccine hesitant. She's not against immunizations. She just wants to be sure the vaccines given to her what children are safe, effective, and necessary. I want somebody who's willing to work with me on all the questions that I have because I have 50 million questions. According to exclusive Ipsos polling conducted for Global News, two-thirds of parents believe vaccinations are necessary, but one in three still worry about side effects. And while 85% believe vaccinations are safe, 85% also feel there is a lot of misinformation out there. The group of individuals that are the hardcore anti-vaxxers is actually relatively small. You're looking at two to five percent, you know, depending on how you count it. But that that 20 to 30 percent that are vaccination hesitant, you know, I think are being influenced by the rhetoric flowing from the hardcore anti-vaxxers. Hi, my name is Shanna and we are a vaccine-free family. And those anti-vax messages have been widely spread via social media. Facebook and YouTube have recently announced plans to crack down on any anti-vax information on their platforms, but public health officials say they realize the damage has been done. Those who are spreading misinformation are absolutely brilliant at um, 
amplifying each other's false information, using very emotionally charged, um, media-savvy kind of techniques. Which is why the Public Health Agency of Canada is now fighting fire with fire, using emotionally charged stories from parents whose children were harmed by vaccine-preventable disease. But the spread of misinformation is only one part of the problem. In communities where religion or cultural practices have influenced anti-vax behavior, public health officials have found the need to develop new strategies in order to build trust. Understanding your population, understanding the social, social cultural aspects of your population and having general respect for everybody and their individual choices. For Bacchus, building trust is key, but right now she says she doesn't believe health officials are willing to tell parents like her the whole story. You shouldn't have to be like running through hoops to get this information. Heather Yurks West, Global News, Calgary. So is this an issue in Manitoba? We asked Manitoba Health and they said overall immunization rates are stable here. And in some cases they're high, but there are pockets of concern. If you look at the meningitis C vaccine, it has a 91% immunization rate. And I think 90% actually is their threshold before they start to get worried. Whooping cough is only 74%. And I think chickenpox was even lower at 71%. So there are those diseases that there's a much lower vaccination rate. And then there's sections of Manitoba where we're also seeing less vaccinations. There's a vaccine for chickenpox? Yeah. How long has that been around? I think it's just I, been about 80s? a decade or so, oh, I think maybe 20 than that. years. Yeah. I definitely not in my time because I did get chicken pox. And I, I think that might be part of it, right? Because I got it, I was 19 when I got oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. You should probably look at the shingles vaccine yeah, you're then. Right. Um, I got the chicken pox when I was six, I think. And maybe part of the problem with chicken pox and people not getting that vaccine is a lot of parents go, well, I had it. I survived. I'll, you know, if there's even a shadow of a doubt for people as to whether or not the vaccines are safe, I could see people justifying and talking themselves out of a couple of those based on the fact that, A, I had the chicken pox and you hear whooping cough. Oh, whooping cough. How bad could that possibly be? So it was introduced in 1995. And I think the thing with chicken pox is that um, it's part of the MMR vaccine. I think mumps, rubella and something else like it measles. gets rolled into I don't know if they, yeah but they have to have two I think you have to have a double you need dose a booster. you need a booster at I think it's 10 and so some people aren't maybe getting that a lot, of, a lot booster, of kids are like not getting forget. the booster. You, I, vaccinated right. my, I even this morning as I was coming in and I heard about this poll I was like oh where am I at with my kids second dose right and uh, they don't they, they do try to send you a letter out saying you're behind on your vaccinations if you ever are or your immunizations but if, you, if you're not paying enough attention or you, a year goes by I, you can slip up uh, so I think that's part of the issue but there is a growing group of people who have just decided I think 30% of Canadians think, are, are vaccine hesitant and, and you were saying this morning you think all that social media has something to do with it. Yeah, there's no question. The The idea of spreading false or negative information, I, I'm not going to go as far. Information that is against the norm. It's easy to spread. It's easy to spread misinformation on the internet, on social media. People gravitate to negativity. It's just what we do. And therefore, it's been very simple to get messages uh, out that have people thinking twice about making these decisions. I'll point this out. I cannot take my dog to a groomer without making sure that her rabies vaccinations are up to date. So, you know... 
that there are there are lines at and every you part of society you, you can't go into a chicken barn things, you can't go into right? a lot of like animal places if 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 you're not properly sanitized or wearing the right outfit and yet i you drop your kids off at school and there is you don't know what percentage of kids in their class have received those those vaccines and so there's I'd also like to know. there's also people out there saying you should publish that but that that would wait, open up a whole can of privacy things i don't know about the mandating i, I know can, public Health Canada is trying to go down the road of, you know, tugging at the heartstrings of people and just hearing stories of kids who've lost their lives or been really sick or uh, disabled from diseases because they didn't get vaccinated. I don't know about forcing people to be vaccinated. Yes, we've been talking this morning about this and boy, the feedback has been overwhelming. And one of the issues contributing to that is a lack of trust in the medical community and this backlash from folks. Dr. Timothy Caulfield is the current Canada Research Chair in Health Law. Let's hear from him. The group of individuals that are the hardcore anti-vaxxers is actually relatively small. You're looking at two to five percent, you know, depending on how you count it. But that that 20 to 30 percent that are vaccination hesitant, you know, I think are being influenced by the rhetoric flowing from the hardcore anti-vaxxers. So I think that's part of it. In addition to that, we have social media now. We've got Facebook. We've got Twitter. These platforms have allowed for uh, the dissemination of misinformation. So people are just getting exposed to it more, I think, than they have uh, in the past. Another big factor, I think, is uh, a decrease in trust. Uh, you know, decrease in trust with respect to our traditional scientific institutions. Uh, you know, there's a decrease in trust in the medical profession and, and perhaps some of the sources of information about vaccination. So that makes space for, I think, conspiracy theories and, and more, more vaccination hesitancy. And I don't know if we're, we're trying to be more respectful in the conversation by eliminating that anti-vax terminology and transitioning to vaccine hesitancy. But I, I, I prefer vaccine hesitancy because, let's face it, people have the, the right to, to ponder and consider things what's right for, for them and their family. And right now in Manitoba, vaccines are not mandatory. But a poll out this morning found that, get this, 88% of Canadians surveyed would approve legislation making it mandatory to vaccinate all school-aged children. That's actually something the Brandon School Division pushed for last year. Linda Ross is the chair of the Brandon School Division and joins us this morning to discuss this further. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. First of all, just for people who are listening, we've had a couple questions this morning about some parents thinking that they had to show proof of vaccination before they registered their kids for school, but but it's not mandatory here, correct? That's not how it works? It's not mandatory in Manitoba. Um... There are, I believe, only two provinces in Canada that require vaccination. One is Ontario and the other one is one of the maritime provinces, but I can't remember which one. So parents might have to show documents detailing what vaccines their kids have, but it doesn't mean they have to have had their kids vaccinated, correct? No, absolutely not. There is no requirement in Manitoba. Do you think there's a perception that there is at a certain age when starting kindergarten that that you have to have those vaccinations, Linda? Um, I, I suppose that there are some people who think that because, of course, it used to be the case, you know, in the olden days. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, you know, when I talk to people who don't want to vaccinate their children, um, they're, they, do, they don't have that, uh, that misperception. And I haven't actually come across that misperception very often. People who, 
who are objecting to it simply do not want to do it. They think it's a matter of parental choice, not something that should be addressed by a legislative mandate. So, Linda, are you hearing more of that, seeing more of that? What What's your data tell you in terms of how this could be contributing to the overall lower rates in some cases for immunizations? Well, um, you know, we brought this forward, we being the Brandon School Division, brought this forward to the uh, Manitoba School Board's uh, convention in twice, in 2016 and 2018, um, asking for mandatory vaccination. And it was fairly soundly defeated uh, both times. And um, as I said, most people were concerned. They thought it was a matter of parental choice. Um, And I know that there are still concerns out there from the fraudulent study of Andrew Wakefield in 1998 saying that vaccinations contributed to the incidence of autism and of course that was fraudulent and and but but that information is still out there and continues to influence people's choices. So why the opposition then to moving ahead with this? Well I think that well that's an excellent question Um, and I think that it's increasingly a question because as the incidence of communicable diseases like like measles increases, um, that the need for vaccination is is increasing. I think that I think that it's a matter of public public safety. That it, you know, if you, it's not that you know you choose to not immunize your children and so everybody else is okay, um, because of course you know everyone's heard of herd immunity by now that a certain proportion of the population has to be immunized and it varies from disease to disease uh in order to protect other people who are not able to be vaccinated now there are some people who can't be vaccinated very you know young infants or people who are have uh, immune compromised systems and so those people are highly at risk if there is not a suitable proportion of people in the population who are immunized. Linda, I'm pretty sure I heard you mention, and one of our listeners uh, is suggesting, that once upon a time this was mandatory. When did that legislation or when did that rule go by the wayside? You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I'm just, you know, I, in fact, I don't know that it was mandatory. I believe that it was. I'm just going back to, you know, as I said, long ago and far away when I was a kid. Sure, <laughs> and, that, and that's more than fair. I think that we all had to be immunized. Sure. So at the end of the day, then, though, there's also people who say, okay, I, I don't want my civil liberties impacted. I don't want you to take away my rights. If I choose not to vaccinate my kids, that's my choice. And so that would be the counter argument to any sort of forced or mandated vaccination. It would. And and I guess the counter-argument to the counter-argument is then, well, if that's your choice, then, um, and, and as the incidence of things like measles starts to increase, the, the counter-argument, or at least the, the question is, if you choose not to vaccinate your children, um, can, are, are you then allowed to put other people at risk by, by exposing your unvaccinated children to to the larger group? And I did read something recently about a small community, I believe in Ontario, that said that that children who weren't vaccinated were being banned from public places. I have no idea how they're going to enforce that, but, uh, you know, because because it is an increasing health concern. People have forgotten, people have forgotten, you know, that everybody used to get measles and mumps and chickenpox and, God forbid, polio. 
Yeah, I, and, and you know, I, I knew people in my family that did deal with polio, and fortunately they recovered from it, but many didn't. And did it, I think a lot of people forget, Linda, that that the entire movement towards non-smoking in public places began as a workplace safety and health issue. It wasn't a taking away a right issue, although that's the way uh, some people viewed it. It was more about yeah. the rights of those who were working in locations that might be unwillfully or unwanting to be exposed to to smoke and were somewhat, uh, quote-unquote, forced to, to be exposed to it. That's right. Absolutely. And I, and I see vaccination the same way. I think that there's a, a pediatrician in Edmonton named Raphael Sharon, and um, Sharon said it very well. He said that vaccination is a moral and social obligation on all of us so that we can protect those who can't, because there are those people who cannot be vaccinated. And um, so I think that in, in the interest of public safety, that it's not unreasonable to, to require vaccination if your children are going to attend public schools. I mean, if you want to keep them at home and homeschool them and never let them out, well, that's your choice. It's Breakfast with the Bombers. It's brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. This week, we're checking in with the head equipment manager of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Brad Foddy. We've been talking to a lot of players who are excited to get back up to Winnipeg or get their season started again. But for you, the work never really stops. What goes on behind the scenes as we get closer and closer to the season when it comes to getting that equipment out and ready for everyone? Uh, right now, we're just in the process of waiting for everything to start coming in, like with our new uh, sponsorship this year with New Era uh, coming in. So we have all new uniforms, game uniforms, practice jerseys, player clothing, coaches clothing. All that stuff is all got to be changed over, so we're just in the process of waiting for it to come in. Um, all our helmets and shoulder pads and any other equipment we've sent away to get reconditioned, the helmets repainted and recertified, and face masks repainted and certified, uh, it's all coming back in and then starting the process of putting everything back together and getting ready for the players to come in and uh, making sure everything's in their lockers and ready to go for when they show up at the start of training camp. With, do the all the companies who provide the uniforms, do they all use similar material or is there any sort of a learning curve in, cur- in terms of how to take care of the garments when you get this turnover in uniforms all the time? No, it's it's uh, we're lucky enough with the, the last couple of companies we've had with Reebok and then Adidas and now New Era. They've all used the same company, a rip-on athletics out of uh, Wisconsin that makes the uniforms for us and they make a lot for NCAA, they made NFL, so they're a very professional company that does some extremely good work and it's just a matter of putting a different uh, logo from a sponsor on the jersey, but uh, the integrity of the jersey is still has been the same for the last few years, so it makes it uh, that a little easier for us with the odd tweak of whether with different uh, widths of elastic or different type of material, but the general cut and everything is still the same throughout the last few years. Brad, how long you been doing this? Uh, I believe this is season twenty nine for me. <laughs> I'm uh, old enough to remember when when the uniforms uh, were a little bit of a hodgepodge. You would have a variety of different spacing between the numbers and and the and the name bar and the numbers even even to themselves weren't necessarily as uh, clean as they 
ought to have been, and this is from someone who used to be in the jersey business and, and used to personalize jerseys for customers, so I had an eye for this stuff. The jerseys are top-notch now, and the uniforms are like look absolutely impeccable. Right, and and that's the way it's evolved over the last few years because it's uh, you know it's 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 almost a science now where you know you order your your jerseys whether the shoulder sleeves are two ply jersey or a two ply material or three ply if it's stretch match uh, little less stre- uh, little less stretch to it um, whether you want an inch thick elastic on the sleeves half inch thick um, uh, on the waist whether you want a no elastic or a quarter inch elastic a half inch elastic. Uh, or you want no elastic at all because some guys just want to short, shorten with no elastic or some guys want the elastic to tighten in and whether they want it tighter than normal. And you, whether you put on a size 48 jersey on a guy, but he wants a 30-inch waist elastic on the bottom. It's it, There's so much more detail in everything that can be done to them nowadays. And, you know, the material gets thinner, but it's funny. It gets stronger and more how much more stretch to it and... Because everything now is all these all the guys want you know smaller, tighter, lighter, and that's uh, basically the way it is now. It's not like a hockey jersey where they're bigger and you know they're comfortable for people to wear. But when you you, you see these jerseys without the shoulder pads on, it's like who's going to wear these things? And some of the ones that the bigger guys like O line and D line wear are skin tight, and you know it, it doesn't fit like a hockey jersey. It's where everything is to be tighter, than less chance of uh, anything to grab for the, the opposing player. So there's that strategy behind the equipment. It's not just, you know, the look of the uniform now. It's really about functionality and making it a part of your key to potentially winning in some ways. Right. And then it's, 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 you want to get it to where it's almost, you know, there's some guys we have that wear them that it takes two of us to help put the jerseys on because they're so tight on them. <laughs> but that's what they want because they just don't want, they don't want to be able to grab it. And you still want it to make it look good because you still want to go out there where the numbers and the name and everything, everybody's looking the same as best it can. But you also want a guy who's who wants a jersey so skin tight that you still got to factor in all that other stuff and make it work. And and you know if it's and it's one of those things if it's you know there some of the guys' perspective is they look good, they play good, and it's it's a lot of a mindset too for them. It's breakfast with the Bombers. We're talking to head equipment manager Brad Foddy. And Brad, the team website bluebombers.com says your primary duty is the protection of the players by fitting each one with customized equipment. So it's your job to make sure the players are wearing the right equipment to keep them healthy, to keep them protected. But do any of them ever push back on you and say, no, man, this is too big. I want smaller. I want something lighter, in spite of the fact that maybe it's not safe. Oh, absolutely. And that's a, that's a thing, you know, where, you know, we'll have some bigger guys that come in and uh, some positions, but they want the smallest pair of shoulder pads they could wear. And it's like, you try to reason with them saying, you know, this is what's, you know, you're exposing this part of your shoulder. You're exposing this part of your back. You're exposing this part of your chest. It's not a good fit. It's not a quick, this is what I wore in school. This is what I wore playing somewhere else this is this is what i want i want it this small i want to be able to have this much access and this much movement it's just like and you know you have to keep it that level where you, you explain your side of the story they explain their side of while they want it and you come to a an agreement with each other to work best at you know what's comfortable for him and it's the same with you know putting air in helmets you can pump all year in the helmet where we've been you know learned over the years to where it should be but is the player when he's got the helmet on putting the air in is he telling you it's as tight as it should be? And you can do all the tests, but is it where it really should be? So there's a lot of give and take on both sides, but it's still in the end looking out for them and doing it, doing our job and what we have to do to protect them. 
Yeah, Brad, I wanted to ask you about the helmets because they have changed uh, so much over the years. The idea of pumping air into them isn't brand new. Do they all work that way now? And, and just how good are the helmets versus 29 years ago when you started? Oh, it's they've come such a long way and they're way safer now than they were back then. Um, it's just there's, you know, some helmets have three, four different areas where they can... Uh, you can put air into them and inflate them. The cheek pads are now inflatable, and the uh, you know the helmets are made so much better nowadays. And it's uh, every almost I think there's two helmets that don't have air in in them, where you can just change the different thickness of the pads in them. And, and those helmets have, have rated high on the testing too. So it has come a long way in the technology and uh, and the process of how the helmets have been made and to protect the player nowadays. And, uh, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's really nothing that, you know, you kind of skeptical of some of the older helmets, but all the newer ones that come out now, they're very well put together. Brad, I see that you've had a pretty good attendance record with the Bombers missing only one game in the last Hmm. 16 seasons. And that was when your wife gave birth to your second daughter back in 2009. When that happened, was there at all any guilt? Like, (laughs) well, I'm going to be a father again, but I had to miss a game. Uh, Yeah, actually, yeah, there's been two games. Uh, There was was one a few years back when my father-in-law passed away too. So it was those two, and there was... There was a lot of, um, and I I put a lot of the guilt upon myself because the team was absolutely fantastic with me on you know, both times when it was my daughter being born and when my father passed, my father-in-law had passed away, you know, saying I could stay home. It was not a problem. You know, you got your assistance. They can help. They can take care of it. We have a good team here of staff here in the equipment room and they would take care of it. But they're still in the back of your mind. It's, you know, you're always second-guessing. Did I make the right decision? Am I doing, you know, Am, am I doing it right? Am I should I be doing this? And you're watching the game, and I was a wreck trying to watch the games because I'm looking for every. I wasn't even really worried about the scoring inside, but I'm looking for like dress code violations. <laughs> and if somebody stuff is falling off, and it was you know it was stuff like that that where I think it was in the in the game when it was my daughter was born. I was texting my guys and Ross Hoskinson at the time about dress code violations. I think he finally set one back and said, "Just put your phone down and quit. Just watch the game." <laughs> you know? Brad Foddy, head equipment manager for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, joining us this morning for breakfast with the Bombers. Brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca. A better place for you. The headline at cjob.com, Millennium Library patrons planning read-in to protest security measures. Yeah, if you recall about a month ago, Winnipeg's Millennium Library introduced amped-up security measures. So they, you know, they were screening page patrons, there was big searches for prohibited items like weapons and alcohol. And the library said then, and, and continues to say, that it's all about safety. But there is a group of regular goers who say it's gone too far and that these new security measures are intrusive and negatively impacting more marginalized Winnipeggers. So some of them have got together to organize a protest for this afternoon, or I think they're calling it a read-in, much like a sit-in. Sarah Broad is one of the organizers and also lives downtown and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. So tell us a little bit about what your concerns might be when you see what's been going on down there in terms of the security. Um, Well, we're very concerned that uh, there are some... um, particular people who are being excluded um, by way of these measures, these security measures. Um, Some people, for example, who carry a lot of things uh, with them when they uh, travel through the city, 
Um, but also just generally, I think uh, the security measures are very, very strong and detrimental to anyone who wants to go into the library. Now, and I understand where you're coming from on this with regard to there are certain marginalized people of the community that that basically carry everything they own with them at a, a given time. What's the answer in your mind here, Sarah? Because we know that things are are more dangerous than they've been in some time, and it's not exclusive to downtown. There are retail outlets that are taking advanced and increased security measures. I mentioned uh, just this morning that I saw an apartment building on Portage Avenue that now has a full-time security guard, at least in the overnight hours. So things are changing on the safety front. What would you like to see? What would be a compromise that would be acceptable in your mind? Well, Unfortunately, when we had the community discussion, we um, a lot of what came out of that discussion was that this is a wider systems problem, like just what you mentioned, right? Where it's like um, there are security guards being uh, positioned in all kinds of places. And um, this is actually a wider uh, issue that has to do with funding in terms of um, people being serviced. Um, and so what we'd really like to see is the screening measures come down in the library to start. Um, we'd really also like to see um, appropriate funding for social services and community supports at the library, but wider as well, like in the whole community. Um, and we'd like to meet with, the, with many community organizations um, to talk about solutions. Um, and we also would like to see the library uh, change its services to better meet the needs of the marginalized people that are trying to access services. Now, it's my understanding, Sarah, that the Millennium Library actually has uh, what they call crisis workers to help with uh, social assistant concerns and all the rest. And I think they've added to the staff. And then on the other side of that, you've had the chief of police even come out talking about seeing more weapons in skywalks and seizing more prohibited items that are of concern to them. So if you remove the screening measures, would you remove that part that it's helping patrons who might not go to the library feel safe? Um, I think what we're what we're asking for in stopping the screening measures is um, it's like it, it's a it's a two part ask, right? So we want the security measures to stop screening, or we want the security measures to stop, um, and we want better funding for social services, either from the province or from uh, the city. However, it needs to shake down. We need better services for all of the people in the Winnipeg community. I think a lot of people would acknowledge that for sure, Sarah. But the in the intermediate and the short term, there, there, there have to be security concerns for the Millennium Library, not only to set up the security, but to go to the expense of setting it up. Are you unconvinced that there's a security issue at the library? I think what you just talked about, the security issues are everywhere in Winnipeg. And we are facing, um, as, com- as communities, we are facing a, a crisis of funding. And so um, that, like, we want the, the security measures down so that everyone can access the, the people that need to access the, the library and all social services. And combined with this extra funding, right, for all uh, social services across the 
Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, some troubling word on Canada's climate and its changing climate, Loren. Yeah, this report came out the same day the carbon tax came into effect in this province and it included the work of 40 scientists who found Canada is warming up twice as fast as the rest of the world and that that warming is effectively irreversible. Chris Dirksen is uh, one of the research scientists with Climate Processes at Environment and Climate Change Canada and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being with us. Considering the carbon tax conversation that's underway in this country, I just want to first ask about the timing of this report that's resonating with a lot of our listeners who are wondering why was it released now in in this week? Uh, This report has been, I guess, in progress for about the past four years and the intensive kind of research and writing phase took about the past two years. And so this time period um, was flagged as our rollout um, at least six months ago. So purposely flagged potentially for the rollout to coincide with any conversations about carbon tax? No, I can't really speak to the details on the timing, but that was just was our our, uh, our timeline going back at least a year now. So uh, some people are, are finding it maybe difficult to digest the fact that Canada is being affected differently than, than other countries on the planet and the fact that, according to this report, Canada is warming up twice as fast as the rest of the world. How do you account for that uh, and, the, and the correlation or the discussion that, that immediately follows with regards to when it, what amounts to Canada being uh, not one of the world's biggest polluters, but maybe, maybe one of its uh, best citizens? Yeah, sure. I can comment first on why we're seeing um, enhanced warming across uh, Canada compared to the global average. So there's two main reasons for that. First, as we know, that uh, land areas are warming up faster than ocean areas across the globe. And as we all know, Canada has a large land mass. So we're a large uh, northern country. Um, and that northern aspect is another important part of the story. So there's a lot of important climate feedbacks that involve snow cover and sea ice. And we know from satellite data over the past 30 years or so that the time of year, the duration of the year when Canada has snow and sea ice cover is decreasing. That means this really bright surface that reflects energy from the sun back into space is shrinking and we're absorbing more heat at the surface in the ocean and over land. And that drives more warming, which in turn melts more snow and ice. So it's these surface processes that drive um, the enhanced warming over Canada compared to the global average. Why, how do you make somebody who lives in Winnipeg year-round care about that? Because when it gets minus 30 and colder here, the headline, Canada warming up twice as fast as the rest of the world, doesn't sound all that bad. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that uh, point of view. I would just say that the, it's, um, the long-term average is important, and as this average temperature increases, um, it dr- you know, drives challenges for ecosystems, for uh, our roadways, transport networks. So we need to be aware of these changes as early in the warming process as possible to help us inform um, policy moving forward. So our intent with this report was to show people in, ac- across the country how climate has changed over the past 30 years, how our climate models project it will change into the future and there's different pathways we can take so hopefully Canadians are informed about what those options are. You know we've been talking about this for years now and the impacts of global warming on our climate and and even despite numerous reports we hear time and time again from listeners and people across this country who who just aren't buying it and they might question the timing of this report they might question the data but at the end of the day there still still seems to be a lot of non-believers out there is there a movement that just deciding these days to question scientists more than ever or, or what do you make of that 
Yeah, I think in our case with the global warming issue, the science speaks for itself. So the evidence is very clear. Um, And if you read into the detail of the report, we provide the evidence base for the historical changes, the physics that are driving those changes. And then we explain how climate models project how things could change in the future. And I think what's important to emphasize here is this is a global problem. It's not just a Canadian problem. The carbon emissions that are driving global warming are produced globally. Um, so we need uh, to address this as a global community. And um, there is a precedent you know, for having done this in the past, whether it's the ozone layer and CFCs or before that, acid rain. The global community can address problems of this scale. Um, it's just a tough one to get everybody aligned at the same time. When you use language like irreversible, do you think there's a danger in that? Because people say, well, why bother then? I mean, we're already on this path. Well, I think what we want to show is that um, this warming that we've had already is essentially locked in. So the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere now has a long residence time. That means even if we turned off the switch now and did not put any more CO2 into the atmosphere, what's already there and what's already warming the planet is locked in for thousands of years. Um, So now moving forward, as we know, we will continue to emit CO2 over the coming decades. The question is, how much do we emit globally and what pathway does that put our planet on? On Monday, April 8th, we are going to select a grand prize winner for Wishing I Was Fishing. 680 CJOB and Winnipeg Custom Countertops and Cabinetry want to send you on the ultimate angler's experience at Q Lake Lodge. All the details at cjob.com. But don't just take our word for it, Greg. Take someone else's word for it who goes there all the time. I would say that uh, we have tapped into one of the true experts. Uh, An individual has a love affair with this part of our province. He doesn't even live in Manitoba. He doesn't even live in Canada. Pardon? He lives in Minnesota. Rich Crawford is his name. And is it, oh boy, I've never been to this town in Minnesota. Is it Audubon, Minnesota? It is, Audubon, Minnesota. I know in the United States you guys uh, like to make the pronunciations obvious and simple, so I appreciate that. <laughs> I know you've uh, fished Lake Canal, Manigatogan, and Happy Lake since 1971, and I know that in 2016 you wrote a complete fishing guide on how to fish those Manitoba jewels. He says, or Rich, you tell us that you've spent 39 weeks of your life on the water in that part of Manitoba. So thanks for coming to join us this morning and and to share some of your intimate knowledge of uh, one of the most beautiful places in the country. Well, absolutely. It's my pleasure. And I always uh, reserve time to talk about this place. (laughs) What makes it so special, Rich, in in, in a a simple question? Well, there's there's actually three things. Number one, the the fishing, if you're a fisherman, has been outstanding, literally. And I've fished all over Canada, and I've fished all over the place. But uh, this truly has been, in, in the guide, I call it the gift that keeps on giving for these many years, and both in terms of the quality of fish and the quantity of fish. And I think the way it's managed is just an outstanding attribute to uh, Manitoba resources. They, they've made it a totally, total quality management lake. Um, and the second thing is that... Um, the experiences I've had with my family, my friends, over the years, I'm guessing I've taken maybe 50 or more uh, people with me, uh, all to have had just outstanding experiences, and I've got all those memories 
uh, to share and to go back on. And third, I think is just the the quality of the environment there is just spectacular. Uh, it's true wilderness. It's not it's not uh, uh, city or suburban or even uh, close by. It's once you get to the lodge, uh, you are in a real wilderness experience. So you get all the things that come with it: the wildlife, the weather, the the uh, the lake conditions over the years and seeing the changes and just a tremendous uh, environment up there that's and clean which is another important factor to me now rich you you come from the land of 10,000 lakes is there no equivalent fishing like that in your backyard well there's lots of lakes uh that you know we've got some outstanding walleye fishery in the detroit lakes area and the bemidji area which I've, i'm coming from and in North Dakota, you can go to Devil's Lake and Garrison and Sakakawea. But I don't think you get anything like the experience um, that you get at at Quinnell and Manigatag. And, um, yeah, so you can catch – there are days when I can go catch a lot of fish here and I can get some big fish here. But it doesn't rival the consistency and also just the quality of the experience. Uh, sitting in a boat and relaxing and – just enjoying the total wilderness environment. And at the same time, I do a lot of slip bobber fishing, and I just wait and sit and watch for that barber to go down, and after that, it's all action. So tell us a bit about, I mean, for people who don't know, how, where are we talking about? How do you get there? Do you have to fly into Winnipeg first and then drive up? I mean, what's... No, the beauty of this place for everybody, especially in, in southern Manitoba and, and northern uh, the northern states and even places further away is that you can drive completely into this lodge. And that's one of the rare places where you can have this kind of a wilderness experience by driving. And so from from Winnipeg, and I'm going to speak in miles, you could probably translate to kilometers for me, but it's about roughly 160 miles north and east of Winnipeg. So you drive, and I take Highway 59 around the east perimeter there and get up toward Pine Falls and Power View. And then from Power View, you go north on a a highway, and then it turns into a high-speed gravel. And then the last 11 miles are a wilderness road into the lodge. So you get the decompression effect as you go through the environments getting to the lodge. I feel like I want to go with you now. (laughs) Me too. And I'd I'd probably have better odds of catching a fish than I do when I'm out on my own. I, you know, I, I do the. I represent the lodge for the sports show in Fargo because it's so close for people from this area to have a drive-up experience at a very reasonable cost. And so, I, I had the pleasure about three weeks ago of doing the sports show, and I can't tell you how many people came up to me and said, "Oh my God, this was everything you had told us it would be plus more." And I thought, "Oh great, that's that's what we're looking for." And uh, especially, I like it when young fishermen are going along and. And a lot of the spouses are coming now, and they're having a blast. And it used to be pretty much a hardcore fisherman guy camp. But it's evolving now to be a real quality experience for everybody. And uh, so, I mean, I've, I've had a good time recommending it to a lot of people. Rich, it feels as though you're getting a, about as close as you can get to the fly-in experience that so many people uh, would suggest is out of reach for them financially with this ability to drive to the lodge. Is that a fair Is that a fair assessment? Uh, that is so fair, and it's actually, uh, it goes beyond fair. If And I've flown in, too. I've flown into Ontario and Manitoba, different places, 
But this is just that absolute perfect combination of proximity and price and wilderness experience. For those who don't, some people fear flying, but other people, you know, when you when you throw in the cost of flying for trips, and they're all quality trips, but you you have to accommodate that in how they price them. So this is as good a fishing, I guarantee, as you'll find on those, and as good accommodation and, and uh, environment, yet at a price that's very affordable for people. No well, doubt about it. You mentioned you don't have to have the fear of flying because you can drive there. Some of us, and my, I would list myself among these people, would have the fear of not necessarily knowing what I'm doing. And, and you mentioned that there's fewer experts, so to speak, that's kind of appealing to all people. So I don't have to be that person that goes in and automatically knows right away how to do everything. There's someone there to help me out potentially. Well, absolutely. They have a guide service that you can hire onto and... But better yet, and I say this as a fisherman, I'm a diehard walleye fisherman, but I have had so many novices up fishing with me, and I've also written in this guide to people a complete how-to for everything, and I'll go over that in maybe a minute. But but literally, if you can put a jig on the end of a fishing line and just take off in the water and go slow, you're going to catch walleye. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be tipped with anything. <laughs> Rich, Rich, what's better, walleye or pickerel? Uh, they're identically the same to me, and they're excellent, both of them. <laughs> I know that, you, I know that, uh, south of the line, as my grandma used to call it, they call it, they have more commonly call it walleye, we, we call it pickerel, but they're, they're the, essentially yeah. the same fish, right? Right, and, and they have, they also have jacks up there, which we call northern tears, so they're also available up there. <laughs> Well, Rich Crawford from Minnesota, who spent 39 weeks of his life up here in Manitoba doing fishing, you have given this as solid an endorsement as we could have found. And uh, thank you for taking the time to, to join us, first of all. And thanks for spending so much time up here in Manitoba. Well, it's my pleasure on both accords. And I hope that uh, for those listening, um, they get the chance to go up and uh, truly experience this for themselves. And you, you also, I mean... It is truly one of those experiences where you will look back and say thank you. So I, I can't endorse it enough. Well, I'm not joking. I'm actually looking at the rates right now and checking to see how I could do it with the family. So you've, you've sold me. I appreciate, appreciate it. Come see us uh, next well, time you're uh, through town, Rich. Let me do a quick plug. If and There are guide, the, the, these guides, and I'm not trying to sell them. I'm just saying they are so valuable for giving anybody information to assess as they're looking at the trip. All right. Rich Crawford, hey, thanks for joining us. We appreciate this very much. Okay. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K. WPG. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.